I invite you to make your way to Luke chapter 19 and verse 1. We're going to consider verse 1 through verse 10 in a message entitled, Jesus Changes Lives. Kevin Jackson wrote a piece several years ago in the Christian Post entitled, Christian author carries mantle of the woman she killed. When Shannon Etheridge was just 16 years old, an act of forgiveness and love changed her life forever. While driving to her high school one day, she ran over Marjorie Jarsfar, a woman who was riding her bicycle along a country road. As a result of the accident, Marjorie died and Etheridge was found at fault by the authorities. As you might imagine, she was consumed with guilt and considered suicide, but she never followed through because of the response of one man, a man named Gary, who just so happened to be Marjorie's husband. Gary forgave the 16-year-old girl and asked the attorney to drop all charges against her, saving her from what would have probably been a guilty verdict. Instead, he simply asked that Etheridge follow in the godly footsteps that his wife had taken. He said, you can't let this ruin your life. God wants to strengthen you through this, and I am passing Marjorie's legacy on to you. Gary's act of forgiveness showed Etheridge the amazing love of God, and she actually went on to be a best-selling author, writing the books Every Girl's Battle and Every Woman's Battle, both of which deal with sexual integrity from a biblical perspective, as well as the book completely his, loving Jesus without limits, helping women overcome guilt-ridden and wounded lives. Etheridge said later in an interview, even though I grew up attending church and singing Jesus loves me, this I know, I don't think that I ever really knew the love of Jesus personally and understood the depth of his mercy and compassion or experienced his love until I met Gary. His response toward me, the one who had caused him indescribable pain and loss, was a vivid picture of how Christ endured all of that pain on the cross. And yet his first concern is always for us, those of us who nailed him there. I've got good news for you today. Jesus changes lives. And we come today to what I believe is the thesis of Luke's gospel and this extended study that we've been in this book Uh, This is the main idea which provides us the utmost clarity on why Jesus came into the world and the difference that he makes. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, speaking of Jesus, it says that he entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to come or for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord, and if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son 
of Abraham. Now verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. We've identified verse 10 as the key verse. And let's think for a few moments how it is that Jesus changes lives and what he can do in our lives today. The setting is Jericho, where Jesus entered and was passing through. Jericho means place of fragrance. It was a significant city of old, located in the Jordan Valley, opposite of Nebo to the west of Gilgal. It was a rich place referred to as the city of palm trees. Josephus, the Jewish historian, called it the place where the palm tree grows with balsam, which is an ointment of all the most precious. According to the Jewish virtual library, uh, Jericho was one of the oldest fortified cities in the ancient Near East, and it was well off with much activity going on there. Just to give you an idea of proximity to Jerusalem, uh, depending on how quickly you would have walked and moved on your journey, it would have taken about seven to eight hours to go from Jericho to Jerusalem. It was at the crossing of the Jordan River and one of the main ways to the city of Jerusalem. And you might also recall that when Jesus came to Jerusalem from Galilee, he traveled that way twice along the Roman road. Jesus evidently entered Jericho this time, either from the north or from the east, with the purpose of exiting on the west uh, to go toward the city. And let's think for a moment how Jesus changes lives and whether or not he's changed your life. If he has, then I want you to remember how you met him and the difference that he has made in your life since that. If he has not yet changed your life, I want you to consider how he can as we make our way through this account. Note, first of all, that a person can have all the world has to offer and be lost. You can have everything that the world thinks is valuable and still be lost. We find some important markers here that tell us a little bit about Zacchaeus, the person. He was a chief tax collector. Taxes in that day were collected regionally. There were these centers of collection that were at Capernaum and Jericho and Jerusalem. And they would have chief tax collectors who would also have tax collectors working under them. They would collect the money from the people along with a surcharge of their own, essentially extorting money from the people. And when they had skimmed whatever it was that they were going to keep and give to the chief tax collector, then the chief tax collector would turn the money in to Rome. And as a result of that, not only was Zacchaeus a chief tax collector, but he's identified here as rich. He had plenty from a worldly standpoint because of these things that were going on under his watch. We're also told that he was a short man, Now, if you've been in Sunday school ever in your entire life, you know not only was he a short man, but a wee little man was he. And you know the full song, and you know the story. And it's interesting here for two reasons. First of all, it's just basically telling us the man's short, so when the crowd came, he had a hard time seeing above the crowd to recognize who Jesus was. And then I think there could be some symbolism here. In how he was viewed by the people, he was hated and of no consequence 
because of the role that he had in society. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able to do so because of the crowd, according to verse 3. So he runs ahead, he climbs up in the sycamore tree to see Jesus because Jesus is about to pass that way. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, why was Zacchaeus interested in seeing who Jesus was? Isn't it clear in Scripture that no one seeks after God on their own? Isn't it clear in the Scripture that nobody can see their spiritual need on their own or do any good in the sense of righteousness in their own strength? Yes, all of those things are true. But what is also true is that God can use certain things in people's lives to show them their need for something outside of themselves. And one of the things that God can use in a person's life to show them their need for him is he can use emptiness and a lack of satisfaction with life as it is to show us our need for something outside of ourselves and to lead us to our need for God. Zacchaeus had everything that the world had to offer financially, and yet he was lost. He was lacking something, or he would not have been curious as to who Jesus was. And maybe you're in a similar circumstance today. You have what the world can offer you. It's brought you comfort and maybe pleasure. It's brought some convenience to your life. Maybe it's brought some stability from a worldly standpoint. But yet you know that there's something that's just not quite right. You know that there's something missing. And we see this story time and time again in people's lives where although it looks like they have everything from the world's standpoint, there's this emptiness that resides within. And they begin to look for solutions to that emptiness. And the only way, of course, that it can be satisfied is through a relationship with God. I think God can also use circumstances in our lives to show us our need for him, to show us that there's nothing that will satisfy. Maybe you're going through a circumstance right now. It could be an adversity. It could be a dark season in your life that you're struggling with. It could be a transition point where you're moving from one stage of your life to the next. It could be a health circumstance where you're not exactly sure what the outcome is going to be. It could be a crisis in your workplace. Any number of things can bring us to the place where we are at the end of ourselves and we recognize our need for God. And then God often uses people who come around us to show us our need for something outside of ourselves and ultimately lead us to him. Perhaps God has brought people around you who know the Lord, whose lives have been changed. Maybe you've heard a gospel witness through them, uh, through a faithful follower of Jesus who shared with you your need for him. And God put those people around you, not by accident, but on purpose, so that you could hear and know the truth. Now back to Zacchaeus. I think it's quite possible. In fact, I would say that it was likely that he had heard about the way that Jesus had changed the life of Levi, the tax collector, who we know as Matthew. After all, this was not a very large region. This is by way of speculation, but I think there's a good likelihood here. This was not a huge network of tax collectors in that region. And when Matthew came and followed Jesus, that most likely caused a great stir. 
And he also had probably heard that Jesus reportedly was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he's thinking, well, I'm a tax collector. Maybe this man who's coming would be a friend of mine as well. And although he had wealth and the lifestyle that went along with it, he wasn't finding full satisfaction in that. Now watch this, because this is going to be an important point that's going to have a flip side to it. Zacchaeus seeking Jesus was a sovereign work of God in his life. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. The account of Zacchaeus is also connected to two preceding events in Luke. This is very important because there was a man who was delivered, who was lost in blindness and in poverty. Here, Zacchaeus is about to be delivered from being lost in wealth and corruption. The story before that one is of the rich ruler who went away from Jesus sad and unsaved. You remember Jesus said that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is impossible by men, but it is possible with God. So the impossibility of what God can do was about to be demonstrated in the life of Zacchaeus. A person can have all the world has to offer and be lost. Second, note that Jesus seeks after people to give them what ultimately matters. Verse 5 says, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus. Now this is profoundly important. We've read this story how many times have we been around church and heard sermons and children's Bible stories. And we think, well, Jesus was there and he, and he points the man out and calls him Zacchaeus. But there's more here. Imagine the moment Because now Zacchaeus, knowing that he can't see over the crowd to see who Jesus is, he's gone ahead, he's shimmied up the sycamore tree, he's looking intently, the crowd is collectively moving with Jesus, so in my mind's eye, it's almost like a a horde of people, They're, they're moving along together, and there Jesus is in the midst of them, like it was everywhere that Jesus went, and in an instant here, he stops as he draws near. He looks up into the tree, and he begins to speak. And he doesn't just speak. He calls the man by name. I believe this was supernatural knowledge in the moment. And Jesus' seeking of Zacchaeus was a sovereign work of God in his life. Now, let me pair the flip side of that that I mentioned earlier. Zacchaeus, seeking after Jesus was a sovereign work of God in his life. And Jesus, seeking of Zacchaeus, was a sovereign work of God in his life. And God is bringing this together so that this man can come to the knowledge of salvation. John 10 and verse 3 says, To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Now We believe that life begins at conception, And God forms us and knows us even before we are born. There is a sovereign thread in our lives where the love of God takes hold of us before we even make our entrance into the world. And the God who gives us physical life at conception knows us personally. Isaiah 44 and verse 24 says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, 
I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. The reason that we believe that life should be honored, valued, and protected from natural conception to natural conclusion is because God honors, values, and protects life. And we ought to be a people who do the same. And as God knows our life when it's brought into being, God also knows intricate details about our lives. In in Luke, we've already learned back in chapter 12 that the Lord knows the number of the hairs on our head. Now, that's just by way of illustration. It's meant literally, but it's by way of illustration to simply say, God knows everything about you that there is to know. There is not one detail in your life that escapes God. And watch this. The God who knows you best loves you the most. He knows every detail. He knows where you've come from. He knows where you are. He knows where you're going. And he loves you more than anybody else could possibly love you. He is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The Bible also says that God knows our appointed times and boundaries. In Acts 17 and verse 26, it says, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And then the psalmist said to God in Psalm 31 and verse 15, my times are in your hand. So God knows who we are. He knows every detail about us. He knows the boundaries and the appointed times of our lives. And let me ask you this question. If those things are true, and they are, then don't you think God also knows your spiritual condition? Don't you also believe that God knows where you are spiritually today? He knows. So he knows in this room, and he knows among those who will hear this message later, he knows who belongs to him. He knows who are his children through repentance and faith. And we can put on a front, we can say all the right words, we can go to church, and if we don't know him, he knows that. And what he wants to do is change your life. And the way that he changes your life is through repentance and faith in Christ. And here Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name, and he says in verse 5, hurry and come down because today it's necessary for me to stay at your house. I see in that a sense of urgency, and I see an importance of Zacchaeus responding, and it says in verse 6 that he quickly came down and he welcomed him joyfully or with rejoicing. Now, you'll want to make a note here in this idea of joyfully or rejoicing that this is a word that Luke uses nine times. It's, It's not by accident. He uses this word nine times, and it always accompanies the attitude of joy that goes with faith and salvation. Isn't that amazing? He's speaking here of something that's about to happen, but it's connected to the way that he uses the word in the remainder of the book because there's rejoicing when salvation comes to an individual. There's rejoicing when salvation comes to a house. 
And when the crowd heard this, they were not happy. They started to complain, grumble, condemn Zacchaeus as a sinner, criticize Jesus for being the guest of such a man. And yet Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, the broken, the sinful, the needy. One commentator wrote, we know how hateful and how detestable the name of publican or tax collector was at that time. It is therefore astonishing kindness in the Son of God to approach such a man from whom the great body of men would recoil and that before he is even requested to do so. Do you know God as the shepherd is presented as the one who searches for the sheep and Ezekiel Chapter 34 and verse 11, it says, For this is what the Lord God says, See, I myself will search for my flock, and I will look for them. John 6 and verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draw, sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You might have heard the phrase referred to God uh, as the hound of heaven. It's not a biblical name, of course, but it's one that uh, was popularized by an English poet named Francis Thompson who wrote a 182-line poem, The Hound of Heaven. I will spare you the entirety of the 182-line poem, but The Hound of Heaven became a well-known descriptive term for God. The poem was first published in 1893, and the author John O'Connor gave it an apt description in his book about the poem, and he said this. He said, the name is strange. It startles one at first. It's so bold and so new and so fearless. It does not attract, but rather the reverse. But when one reads the poem, the strangeness disappears. The meaning is understood. As the hound follows the hare, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing nearer in the chase, with unhurrying and imperturbed pace, so does God follow the fleeing soul by his divine grace." And though in sin or in human love, away from God, it seeks to hide itself, divine grace follows after, unwearyingly follows ever after till the soul feels the pressure forcing it to turn to God alone in that never-ending pursuit. There's a mystery in this, obviously, but the beauty of this is that because God has given us physical life, he wants us to receive spiritual life. And he makes known to us the way of salvation through repentance and faith in his son. And the Bible says, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel is for everybody. It is a free and full offer and God calls us to believe. And Jesus seeks after people. And the reason that Jesus seeks after people is because he wants to give them what ultimately matters. And I want you to note third, that people who repent and believe are saved by the grace of God. Now, verse 8 says that Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're reading this carefully, when I read that, I'm almost like, did I miss part of the story? Did, did we just skip over part of the narrative? Is there something here that we're not given that would be the missing piece of the puzzle? Because we're not told if this took place uh, in his home or after the meal or exactly where. 
But what we're told simply is that Zacchaeus made a commitment to give half of his possessions to the poor. That in and of itself was generous because it would have only been required that they would give 20% of what they had. And here he is, he's going to give half. Furthermore, whatever he extorted, he's going to pay back four times as much. So what's he doing? He's laying everything that he has on the line as a sign of repentance because he wants things to be right. He wants to do right. Now, don't miss this point. This is not the root of his salvation. As we'll see in just a moment, the root of his salvation is faith. This is the fruit of his salvation, which is the outward act of repentance or making things right, making restitution for what he's done wrong. That's what he felt led to do under the convicting power of God. And somebody said, in effect, he's living out the command that had earlier caused the rich ruler so much grief, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. And then then he says this, he says, he was walking through the eye of a needle and he was living to tell about it. That's what Zacchaeus was doing. He's walking through that eye of a needle that, it, that it's impossible for man to do by the power of God, and he's living to tell about it. And Luke doesn't give us the specifics, but it's implied here and then explained by Jesus that Zacchaeus accepted the teachings of Jesus. He, he's referred to here as a son of Abraham. How did Abraham become right with God? The Bible says he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was through faith in what God told him. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. And as a believer in Jesus, Zacchaeus was saved. And he was a son of Abraham who also believed God by faith. And I say to you today, to be saved is to be rescued from the guilt and the bondage and the power and the penalty of sin. And the only way any of us are saved is what Jesus has done in accomplishing our salvation through his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection. So we recognize that salvation is a free gift of God that is undeserved. We cannot earn it. It is available only by faith. And we receive it when we come and we recognize that God is a holy God and we are a sinful people and we are separated from God because of our sin. But God has made the way for us to be reconciled through his only son. And we turn from our sins and we turn to the Savior and the gift is freely given to us and we are justified and we are declared righteous in Christ because of what he has done. That's how we're saved. That's the gift of God that is eternal life. And I ask you today, does God still dramatically change lives now like he changed Zacchaeus' life? And the answer is, emphatically, overwhelmingly, yes, God is still changing lives. And while my story or your story is not on the pages of Scripture, our story is nonetheless just as dramatic because God looked down with love and care for us and he brought us to a knowledge of himself and he saved us by his grace through faith, and brought us to the knowledge of salvation. I read an article that was in a publication called Missions Box in 2018. 
entitled Wealthiest Man in Singapore, puts his trust in Christ alone. There's a man by the name of Philip N.G. Chi Tot, who is a highly accomplished businessman who, along with his brother, has spent decades building major business interests in the Far East. They are worth collectively, reportedly, over $13 billion. He is said to be the wealthiest man in Singapore, and yet it's not his money that is the motivator of his life. It's not his resources that are an idol or anything that he puts his trust in. His trust is in Christ alone. Every time he has the opportunity when he's interviewed, and it's quite often in the media because of his holdings and his influence, primarily in properties and business ventures related to that, he gives testimony of Christ. And he said this about his companies. He said, we are a Christian enterprise which develops real estate and operates businesses by serving with grace and love, integrity, and honesty. And in an interview, Philip said, what I have discovered is that all of us are broken. We all have a missing piece. And I discovered that that missing piece was God through Jesus Christ. And then he said this, it doesn't matter if we are rich or poor, we are missing life itself unless we know and trust God. And then he concludes with this in the interview, the only way to come to him is through Jesus Christ. Friends, God is still in the life-changing business. Jesus is still meeting people where they are and transforming them to be who he wants them to be. Jesus is still reaching down in, in desperate circumstances and in dark circumstances and in situations that seem hopeless where there's no way out and there's no answer and there's no solution. And he's reaching down into hearts that recognize that they are empty, that they don't have satisfaction. He's speaking into lives who are looking for something but don't understand what it is that they're looking for. And maybe you're at such a place like that in your life right now where you've heard just enough about God and just enough about the gospel that you're interested in. You might not be climbing up a sycamore tree to look over and to see Jesus and who he is as he comes, but you're listening in really well and you're leaning in and you're looking to see who this Jesus is. And I'm here to tell you that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no way to come to the Father but by him. And if we will come to him in repentance and faith, he will change our lives. He will change your life today, now, in an instant, if you'll only trust him. That's what he did for Zacchaeus. And that's what he'll do for you. And we come back to the main idea of, I think, of this entire gospel. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's the conclusion of the whole thing. You say, does God care about the lost? Well, he told the story in Luke chapter 15, Jesus did, of the parable of the shepherd who left his flock of 99 sheep and went into the desert to search for that one that was lost. And when that lost sheep was found in verse 10, it says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. God cares about the lost. 
And God made the costliest sacrifice that he could possibly make. God gave the greatest gift that he could possibly give. And he sent his son into the world to die on the cross and to be raised from the dead so that the lost would be sought after and so that the lost would be saved. So that says to us at the church that if God cares about the lost, we should care about the lost. And the mission for which we exist is that we have this great privilege to tell people that Jesus changes lives. And sometimes we complicate it. Sometimes Sometimes we make it hard. Sometimes we're not faithful with sharing it as we should. But this is the heart of who we are, and this is why we exist, to share the good news about Jesus. Because he's changed our lives. He still can change other people's lives as well. Let's bow our heads together just for a moment as we go toward a time of prayer. I want you to think for a moment if Jesus has already changed your life. And you're growing closer to him as his disciple. I want you to think about when you were saved. I want you to think about that moment that God brought you to, that crossroads where you were confronted with your sin and you realized that God is holy and that you needed Jesus. Would you take a moment just to be grateful to God for saving your soul, for finding you when you were lost, for giving you the free gift of salvation? If you say, Pastor, I don't, I don't have that kind of memory to look back on because I've never been saved. Jesus has not changed my life. I know about him. Maybe you even respect him. But you're not walking with him by faith. Right now in this moment, the Bible says, if you will confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead you'll be saved. And you can pray and you can ask God to save your soul. And you pray a prayer, something along these lines. It's not a prayer that saves you. It's God who saves you when you express faith to him. You say, God, I believe that you are the creator of all that there is and you're holy. And I realize that I am sinful and I'm lost and I need to be saved. Right now in this moment, I repent of my sins and I am believing in Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Savior and Lord, to save my soul. Thank you, God, for hearing my prayer and saving me. As we continue to pray, if you prayed that prayer just in that moment, God heard that faith from your heart. and He wants you to follow Jesus as his disciple. He's given you the greatest gift that could ever be given. And he wants you to walk with him. We want to help you do that. Father, we are unworthy, but we are most grateful. We are undeserving, but we are overwhelmed. And we just say thank you, Jesus, for the hope that we have because of your finished work at the cross and because of the power of your resurrection. We believe even now you are seated at the right hand of God the Father. And as we sang earlier, you're coming again. And we long for that. We look forward to it. Our, our prayer today collectively would be, even so, come Lord Jesus. We await you. We long for your return. In the meantime, would you find us faithful as the people of God? 
Help us to be good stewards with the gospel. And we pray for fruit, for souls to be saved, lives to be changed through our faithful witness and through the work of this church. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.